Calling all beans, y'all. Let's get it. Welcome back to Calling All Beings. It's a big night when we're going to have my U.S. Navy brother from a three-letter agency about to get into it, but not before we talk about the other money man, the man who every time this man speaks, it's like dollar bills coming out his mouth or pounds <laughs> if you're from England. We're talking about my co-host Money Nathan. Pound sterling. That's right. Yeah, DJ, what's going on, man? <laughs> Nothing, man. It's good to see you. Uh, we're missing our beautiful sunflower of love. That woman is known as, and I hope she changes her Twitter handle to this, at Akashi Chris. It's actually at Chris Mullins TX. Mm -hmm. So we're missing you tonight, Chris. Please come back and join us, Holmes, when things be all right. And we do have somebody else, though. I mean, this man has become famous for bringing some, uh, some laughter, some love, and some artwork and actually, a lot of his loves come through his artwork, because I'll tell you what, he ain't answering the phone when I call. I don't answer the phone when anyone calls. Hilarious <laughs> Kevin! <laughs> What's up, Kev? Hi. How's it going, guys? Hi, hey, man. Good to see you. Good, brother. Your well hair looks see great, you but all. you didn't hear me say Thank that. You. Um, And someone else's <laughs> hair who looks great that you guys can't see, but we did see it. Mm -hmm. The lovely and talented. The legendary. The one who will ask a member of the joint staff to come on her show and demand that they show up. And that is the host of at Deb's data or data dojo, depending on what day of the week at a study of UAPs, Deb's. Yes. What's up, I Deb? can't ever decide. Hi, everybody. I love it. You went with data last time. So you know who your friends are, depending on how they say data or data. So that's how you yeah, be man. careful. As long as the information gets out there. Yeah, right. we know how Frank and Charlotte are going to say it, and they were just on, on from England. That's so dope. Can't wait till he releases that. But right now, we <laughs> got to welcome in a very special guest, my U.S. Navy brother from the three-letter agency known as the Central Intelligence a Agency. Put your hands together for Senor John. Ramirez! Yes! Welcome back, Mr. Ramirez. I'm clapping. Thank Deb. I, you got to work on that. No, I'm <laughs> We're so happy to have you back, Mr. Ramirez. How are you, sir? I'm uh, doing great, DJ. Ah, you know what? You look, you look fired up and ready. So, but without any further ado, I'm going to turn you over to the other money man that's on this show, other than yourself, Money Nathan. Thanks, DJ. And John, great to see you again. Uh, really great to have you back with us on the show, uh, just kind of on a one-on-one -on -one basis to get into some things. I'm going to jump right into it because I really want your opinion on this topic. So is it is it fair to say that when an intelligence officer is you know, kind of making an assessment and a recommendation to a policymaker, for example, that the intelligence agencies and officers have considered the various uh, sort of downstream effects of their recommendations is that a is that a pretty fair assessment uh yes first of all um we don't recommend any kind of policy whatsoever 
what we do is provide uh, policy decision levers. And basically we just outline, if you do this, this might happen. Oh, by the way, there might be unintended consequences of doing that. So we'll rack and stack all of these decision levers and allow the policymakers to pick one um, because it's the policymaker and by policymaker, I mean the president of the United States uh, to pick one and just with advice of uh, his or her staff, especially National Security Council, um, to go with a certain decision. And because they've already assessed, like, this is the outcome we want, but we can live with the outcome we don't want. And mm -hmm. so that's what we do. Excellent. Well, so, and I asked that question just in light of uh, what we know uh, from Lou Elizondo, what he's kind of trying to get the community of interest engaged, get policymakers engaged to get the study of UFOs and, and kind of get it out more in the open, make it more palatable, more mainstream. And I just, I always wondered what your thoughts were on that initiative and it, you know, what would be, if policymakers say yes to everything kind of Lou and Chris Mellon are recommending, for example, uh, do, do you think they have a good sense from, from those guys and others who are involved with this effort of what those uh, potential downstream uh, ramifications might be? I'm sure policymakers will take that into consideration. It really depends on the end goal. I mean, what is the purpose of disclosing anything? What, what do they want to happen by this disclosure? And they'll have to take that into account. Um, for sure, the policymakers are not going to disclose just to satisfy our curiosities there will be some kind of a strategic goal in mind for the United States and for our allies and just balancing the geopolitical aspects, the sociological aspects, even the spiritual aspects of what it would do to people's belief systems, economic aspects, what would it do um, to our world markets? Everything ha will have to be taken into account. Uh, but having said that, um, I would think that above Lou, there would be a committee of some sort um, that is actually managing uh, the narrative for the policymakers and uh, other people will be feeding into that committee. And that committee is the one that will rack and stack these various options for the policymakers. Um, I don't think at our level, the formers, whatever position we might hold, will have that direct input into the White House. I might be wrong, but I doubt if we would have that kind of input to the White House, but we will have input into this committee. Now you can call this committee uh, Majestic 12, NJ12 or Zodiac, whatever you call it, um, it the name doesn't matter. Uh, there likely is a committee making decisions as to what the policymakers uh, can see, actually. They're, they're the control group. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's AO, um, AOI MSG from now on, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's not folks out there like talking to the public um, in the public space like Lou will go then straight to the policymakers. But mm -hmm. there's got to be some layer between uh, those who interface with the public and to actually to those who interface directly with the policymaker. I, I've always thought, John, that there, you know, when I, I had never heard of Majestic 12 until I became part of this community uh, as I wasn't really tracking ufos beyond my own interest and belief in them which i was hiding uh very specifically but i've always felt that in order to keep people that have a need to know 
And when I say need to know, I mean the National Command Authority, uh, President, SecDef, Joint, Joint Chiefs types. In order to have something, so in, you know, from 1947 until now, to maybe have a craft or have bodies or have something, but to keep them from knowing, there would have to be some sort of a construct to keep people with the need to know from knowing. So do you think that, that such a construct existed by whatever name? Um, I was never read into any kind of construct whatsoever. Um, I would have to think that there is something like that. Otherwise, um, this is the best kept government secret uh, in a long time. And uh, the fact that, you know, originally there was that newspaper article in um, the Roswell newspaper, um, people forgot about it for a long, long time until, you know, ufologists decades later resurrected it. And so um, we didn't know about Roswell, even though it was widely reported at the time, it was just plainly forgotten. In the meantime, we did get like movies and TV shows um, talking about flying saucers, flying saucers attacking Washington, D.C., whatever. Um, you know, it was almost like a narrative of trying to get the public prepared for the existence of um, other beings visiting the planet. And they may not all be uh, friendly beings. They, they may not all be um, unfriendly beings. But it seems like there was a preparation going on of preparing the public for the reality of this happening. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I would think that there is some kind of construct, but I think part of that construct is um, let's prepare the public first. And I think that's what we're seeing. Um, in the last five years, we've been prepared far better than the previous several decades. Um, I think we can make that argument that since 2017, um, this entire topic has really risen to the level where um, it's in actual legislation, uh, the law of the land, if you will. And that's never happened before. So uh, maybe that's all part of the construct as well, is that we need to like prepare the public and then we need to like have some kind of um, construct above everything to bring it up to the level of uh, legislation so that uh, there's some way of for witnesses, either in government or the military, um, to come forward and be questioned by a congressional committee under oath. And so that's never happened before. There was nothing to allow that to happen unless it happened behind closed doors. But now that's out. And then we have a reporting uh, periodicity uh, and 180 day intervals and um, remind everyone that there's also a intelligence authorization act of FY22 that had a 90 day interval I'm not sure exactly what happened to the IAA FY22, but it was 90-day interval, and they called out not AOI MSG, but they said um, in that legislation that uh, the National Air and Space Intelligence should take uh, a major role in the study of this phenomenon. And NASIC, of course, is what was FTD or um, what was T2 intelligence during the actual time of Roswell. So it's like preparing the groundwork first, um, and then we can then understand exactly what's going on if there are like public hearings or if there is a report that can be made to the public. But really, it, there's a, a role here for citizen science. And I would think that because it's a congressional committee, they can subpoena any witness they want. I would, I would hope that they'll extend an invitation out to 
folks in the civilian sector, um, like experiencers, personal experiencers, um, under the construct of maybe uh, SCU or uh, any of the other organizations like Project Galileo. I mean, I think they should like have a seat at the table and testify before Congress, have these experts show up in public um, on, for the record. Uh, I would love to see a uh, congressional um, a hearing and have and see like uh, Eric W. Davis and uh, mm. Al sitting at the table there, right? 100%. I would love to have them like being questioned by Congress. What do you know? What did you work on? And those kind of lines of questioning. Um, but, but I think it uh, seems like there's a I, Berlin I, I, wall. There's a Berlin wall, though, that they're seeing 2017 and forward. And then perhaps that old guard, that construct, if it existed, knows what happened from 47 until 2017. And right. they're not getting that. Right. And that's what the IAA, if you look at the language, um, it states a 90 day report interval and also. Everything that may have occurred or any files that the government may have uh, have been holding uh, prior to the first 90 days. So whenever that legislation is passed, the 90 day clock ticks for that. And within the first 90 days, a report is due. And also any report or anything in the files prior to that 90 day clock ticking. So um, if I'm reading it right, it seems like it would open up more of the files going back uh, several decades. And reminder, IAA doesn't affect the Pentagon as much as it affects CIA. Mm. So you got two very separate attempts, or um, not attempts, but two separate endeavors. Uh, one from the military side through the NDAA, which has absolutely no, um, uh, I would say, no legislative um, uh, influence over CIA. Right. And you have the IAA, which totally has legislative influence over CIA. But not so much the Pentagon. So you have like, what does the military know, and what does the civilian intelligence agencies know? And together, they might be able to put together a broader story. If, if I could ask just a follow up before we hand it off to Kevin. I, so it, there's this um, sort of concept in education where, where you're stacking ideas uh, before you proceed on to something else. So you're, you're laying out levels of understanding. And you're building on top of those levels so that you can understand the full picture. You don't jump all, all of a sudden to graduate you know, class. Mm -hmm. So uh, the concept of hearings in Congress, I guess I struggle with that a little bit because of just the what I would think would be kind of the the uncontrollable nature of what what is just going to be said and from from how many different sources. And then how do you compile all of that disparate information into a singular kind of narrative that Congress can work with and make decisions from, uh, you know, maybe it comes back to the committee that you were alluding to that, that that could kind of help steer the conversation or steer the types of folks that, that Congress would call to those hearings. But what is your sense in which we would have to stack, you know, kind of concepts sequentially before we get to some of the stranger things that we hear about, uh, you know, I think skinwalkers at the Pentagon is a great, you know, example of that, that end of the spectrum. Well, before um, anything happens before a congressional committee, there's a lot of staff work involved and that's why the staffs are there. Um, the staff will like, go out and try to then gather or aggregate um, the entire, um, spectrum of this phenomenon 
and then try to divide it up into something that makes logical sense for the members. Um, so when you see a congressional committee on C-SPAN, uh, before that committee meets, I mean, for maybe weeks or months before that, uh, they're doing this other work at the staff level, at, at hidden away um, for the staff to prepare the members uh, questions they can ask. So a lot of that happens. And then um, before staff, they can go and, and actually do interviews with principals mm. to see, like, the, the members have these questions they want to ask. Um, what is your uh, preliminary answer? You know, what, what can you say? Um, and they can uh, also be under oath when you talk to a congressional staff. You, you know, you're basically under oath as well. Um, I've been questioned by congressional staff um, uh, for the HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, before they were doing an investigation of why there were so many of these um, technical ELINT labs all over the community. And we had one, NSA had one, uh, Missile and Space Intelligence Center in Huntsville, Alabama had one. There's one at NASIC. I mean, everywhere there was there were labs like, like the one we, that we had at CIA headquarters. And I went out, why is there such redundancy? So I provided them with information on why we did what we did. And they, they gathered all that together, um, questioning my, my counterparts and the other agencies, and then presented that before um, the full committee, um, doing that committee work ahead of time, so that then the committee then can bring forward the leaders of these agencies and ask them questions about why there are so many uh, different labs. Um, so that's an example that I participated in. You will never, you cannot FOIA that. It's not something that's documented at all. Mm -hmm. um, so when people say, well, did this person actually brief or uh, the, the committee? Um, first of all, you don't brief Congress. <laughs> you do not brief Congress. Congress um, asks you questions. Ask you questions. <laughs> they inquire, it's yeah. an inquiry. So you're not lecturing or briefing Congress on anything. However, having said that, the committee can then, um, before that would take place, the committee will gather a lot of information. So you can actually appear before a committee, quote unquote, without having any kind of FOIA document documenting the fact that that meeting happened. Because you'll never find that John Ramirez uh, provided testimony for a congressional staffer on the question that the committee HIPSI had on that issue I talked about, about the all these labs. So... Thank you. Kevin? <clears throat> all right. Well, first of all, John, thank you for being here. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, so what I usually do is a comic bit, but instead I, I actually, since the last time you're on your, you're on this show, I actually had an experience of my own that I would like, actually, I'd like your input on. So would you be willing to do that? I'll try. Okay. Cool. Okay. So I, so I'm a behaviorist. Um, I write stuff basically without interpretations. I just throw out the facts. So hopefully that will be easier for you guys. So um, I have times. So this started at 10.22 PM. It was January 31st on Monday. All right. So I was in the living room laying and sitting on my couch. All right. I'm watching um, Uncharted X on YouTube, some you know ancient stuff. Um, my wife says, good night. Let's the dog out for the usual routine. This is the same routine we do every night. So at 10.25, she lets the dog in, she locks the backsliding door, and she bars it. Now, this is a 
It's a it's a nice bar. It's a very thick PVC pipe, and that's important later. All right. <laughs> so, all right. So at eleven o'clock, my bedtime. All right. I stand up, turn the PlayStation and the speakers off, and then nothing. Three a.m. I wake up, sitting position on the couch. All right. So um, at the time, I kind of thought it was cool. I was like, hey, maybe something happened, but I was kind of too tired to dig into it. So I, you know, shrugged, laughed, went back to bed. So 6.30 in the morning, um, wife wakes up, does lets the dog out, does the, the routine, but she finds the sliding door unlocked and unbarred. The PlayStation and speakers are powered off, all right? Now, we also have security cameras in our house to, to monitor the rooms. So, you know, we think that's weird. So we go, hey, let's go look at the security camera because it's weird. Why did I wake up at 3 a.m. with, you know, nothing? Why are the doors unlocked? So um, we check the camera. So between uh, 11 p.m. and 3 a.m., the cloud will not allow her access to the footage. Ooh. And we still, to this day, we cannot get the footage. I, we don't know why. All right. And I, so the next morning also, I have um, sciatic nerve flare-up on my left hip. I can't walk without extreme pain. I have I have a condition, but you know that flares up. But this this morning it was really bad. So um yeah, do you have do you have any uh any insight on what happened? No, I don't. Um, that's that's definitely high strangeness. I've heard yeah. before that people with uh, security cameras, like they may have some Nest cameras around, that when things like that happen, um, all they get is static that period of time and they get absolutely no no images it's yeah. interesting that you said you had a sciatic flare-up mm -hmm. because i would say um since you shared i will share i've also had this sciatic flare-up for, for uh the last two or three weeks on the left hey. side uh, my left so, side also yes the left side and and so um i haven't had this since 2017 uh, mm -hmm. It flared up again, and what happened? And it's actually, uh, it happened toward the, oh, I would say the like late fall of 2017 that this happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's around the time that uh, Tic Tac happened. It was November of 2017, and right about the same time, I had this sciatic flare-up. I could literally uh, not walk very well. Yeah, um, and so last couple of weeks uh, this year, 2022, I've also had another recurrence of what you've been suffering. So I, I know the pain of a sciatic oh, flare-up on the left side. Yeah, I know that. And uh, so um, Also, another interesting thing. So I've had, speaking of left side, since since childhood or un, unknown, I've had a scar. I have a scoot mark on my left hip. Also, um, I actually have a picture of it, if you would like to see that, that... Um, I posted now this thing it's big it's about the size of my as round as my thumb so if you can see the the white the roundness of it i mean it's definitely a scoop mark it's pretty deep mm -hmm. and i yeah i don't know where it came from um since childhood sleep paralysis i have that i know a lot of experiences that you guys you guys get sleep paralysis too so mm -hmm. i don't know i'm starting to put things together with, with i mean do you have any in insight about maybe the scoop mark on my hip um yeah. they seem to appear different uh differently um yeah i know i have a friend at uh 
CIA. Well, he's retired now, but he was a CIA friend. And uh, he had two scoop marks, um, almost identical scoop marks, um, one on his left arm, one on his right arm. They were almost mm -hmm. symmetric in positioning, size, depth, everything. And he's also an experiencer um, as well. And okay. um, my understanding is um, uh, Mr. Jim Simivan uh, said something about having some kind of markings. I think he said that that there were some kind of markings to George Knapp, that he may have experienced something like wow. that, some kind of, um, I think he's used the word puncture, like a puncture. Um, but uh, I would think that's kind of universal, that, you know, you, you see things on your body that you can't explain. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, it's a company with, like, high strangeness events, uh, sleep paralysis over, um, well, for me, it was since, since I can remember as a child. Um, but I don't, I think that's kind of, uh, indicative of being an experiencer and having experiences and maybe not being a remember. Uh, what helped me was to get that, um, uh, regression therapy, um, called QHHT quantum healing hypnosis technique, uh, Dolores Cannon, uh, modality and there are practitioners just about everywhere um, my wife and i found one here in the tucson area in fact we invited her to our home for a social event and oh, cool. uh, so this qhht practitioners they um if you go to a re regular therapist they're going to assume that something's wrong with you <laughs> they want they want to medicate <laughs> you know if they can write prescriptions they want to medicate you right away you know um mm -hmm. but the qhht practitioners um, they deal with high strangeness all the time. Um, and also for those who can't remember or maybe have disturbing um, experiences, um, it's the, uh, or the Organization for Paranormal Understanding and Support, OPUS Network. OPUS. Yeah, okay. OPUS uh, Network. And if you look on their website, I mean, they're all about helping people with experiences, either to remember them or to be able to understand them or um, kind of take them through if it was a disturbing aspect, trying to help them, but with kindness and understanding and love, mm -hmm. you know, for the experiencer, not that, oh, something's wrong with you. Yeah. And so I'm a cool. supporter of, of the Opus Network. I think they're great. And also QHHT practitioners. Uh, there's mm -hmm. probably several near, like in, any major city would have several practitioners like that. Yeah, Nathan, awesome. Nathan and I, our first guest was uh, Carlene, was a That's Dolores right. Cannon disciple as well. And she lives in, I want to, is it in Oregon, right, Nathan? Is yeah, that's right. So we'll, we, we can connect you up with her, uh, Kev. Maybe that's a connection that can be made if you can't find one right in the Sacramento area. Cool. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, if I were a phenomenon and I were looking for biological samples, I'd take a look at Kevin's hair. I would definitely want that. I would, you know. <laughs> For me, I would take yeah. a look at me and go, you know what? We're we're good for today, but with Kevin, I, I think they would want it. Uh, Debs, maybe I'm we, a hybrid. Yeah, I, it's quite possible. Debs, I mean, we have you're like the tiger that needs to be let out of her cage. So I'm just going to go ahead and unlock the cage. Go ahead. Thank you. Go ahead, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I know that we're going to go into this in more detail in the future. Um. About experiencer help. Um. On the dojo, but I wanted to give you a chance to explain to people about the hypnosis method that you're using because 
Um, you had mentioned it again. You mentioned it um, in other interviews. And I, I think people need to understand that it might not be necessarily the same type of hypnosis that they're imagining. Um, can you tell people more about the specific type that you were utilizing? Um, so I, the QHHT uh, modality um, is uh, based on um, being able to not necessarily regress you, but putting you into a, uh, a state where you are talking more, um, the practitioner is talking more to your higher self uh, than to you. And so uh, what my practitioner did was to uh, uh, take me through some various uh, kind of vision exercises. Uh, ultimately, it was like um, floating, on a, floating in the sky on a cloud, sitting on a cloud. And um, then, you know, just describing what I see around me, uh, describing my feelings and my sensations. Um, is it warm, you know, because the sun is there? And do you feel safe? And then gradually, like bringing me down gently. And then at the point where I touch the earth again, she asked me, you know, what do you see now? And so in that state of mind, which took about five minutes to do in that state of mind, um, I was able to like imagine like vividly being at some place other than where I was at. And I started to refer to myself as he, not me. And when she would ask me questions, she's asking my higher self, referring to me in the third person. And I referred to myself in the third person. And so that was basically what I experienced. And they don't lead, they don't lead, ask leading questions. Um, they actually ask you to describe what you see, how you feel, uh, look this way, look that way from wherever you're at and describe what you see. And so I took her through some various like um, uh, past lives that I had and it's recorded. It's on, um, I have an MP3 of, of my hour and a half, almost two hour session. And recently I, I listened to it again. I haven't heard it since it first occurred um, several years ago and I listened to it again. I was really surprised at what I said. And uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting modality um, because it doesn't assume um, like there's any outcome. There is no outcome. There's no expectation. You just describe what you see, what you are feeling. Um, so that's the best I can describe it. Um, there are several QHHT uh, videos on YouTube if you want to see a sample session. Um, there's several there. Um, there's a woman named Sarah. Uh, Brexman Cosme, and she's a level three QHHT practitioner who works with the daughter of Dolores Cannon. Oh, wow. So she's partnering with the daughter of Dolores Cannon, and she has uh, uh, documented, with permission of the client, several of their QHHT sessions. And there's a YouTube channel you can look up, Sarah Brexman Cosme, and look at uh, a sample uh, QHHT session to see what that's like. 
I'm interested to do it. Uh, Deb, do you have a follow-up for that? Or are we going back uh, to Well, you? first of all, I wanted to say thank you. Um, I was writing down notes, because that's what I do. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll go take a look at that. <laughs> but um, but I was going to say that I, I was just, my only other thought is um, sometimes, personally for me, when I meditate, I don't give myself an expectation. And I have just really unusual meditation experiences. And I wonder if I'm touching on that somehow that same kind of whatever that experience is and if if you think that something other people can kind of bump into also accidentally when they're meditating um yeah when i meditate i don't have expectations either um basically um i do my meditation uh, originally um I was taught by uh, another of one of my light workers, uh, Glenn Younger, Glenn with two N's, Younger. Uh, she lives in Vicenza, Italy. I met her in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, she was actually during her meditation, um, it, it came to her that she needed to go to this location I was at and she showed up and we just struck a conversation and um, uh, we just like meshed so well together because um, she's an experiencer as well. And uh, through her meditation technique, um, which is also on YouTube, uh, it first, it sort of like tunes you to be receptive to any messages. So there's uh, this idea of, you know, imagining all your energy into a, like a, a sphere or a ball, and then, and then just concentrating it um, right over, um, or right, right under your heart chakra, and then just sending it down to the to the lower chakras into the earth, um, and thanking the earth, and also asking Earth's forgiveness for all the things that we've done to harm her, and bringing that energy, the earth energy, back up to through you, and out through your crown chakra, um, and then out into the cosmos, and just thanking the cosmos, and and just saying I'm open for any messages that you might have for me and then bring it all back. And that usually works for me very well. And I close my eyes and all of a sudden I see images pop up. Um, and they're like, for me, they're kind of shaded green. That's my color, it's my favorite color. Um, and so I see green images of things that um, I ask questions about, you know, like it's an opportunity to ask questions. Um, and. You might not get an answer right away, but you're putting forth um, an intention or a manifestation to the universe. And, it may, and so far, I, I'm surprised at how well it worked uh, for me, uh, that I sometimes I get answers the very same day, and sometimes it might take weeks or months, but the answer comes. Um, so that's just remarkable, this type of uh, meditation that she teaches uh, as well. So that's what I do, and I'm sure everyone has their own meditation techniques um, but the the idea is to you know dedicate that meditation for your own good and for the good of others because you're asking questions and you want the answer but you want to dedicate that answer um, to do no harm uh, mm -hmm. to use the Hippocratic oath uh, do no harm and that you that you want to thank it uh, that message uh, and the messenger um, and so it's it's like you, you feel this unconditional love, you feel this connection um, to everything. And it's hard to describe, but I don't use the, the term unconditional love lightly. I mean, I 
you really feel connected to everything during the during the meditation I was taught. And you are very receptive at that point um, for these various messages. And it's not that I need to understand the message right away or understand the experience right away, but to store it away, to put it away, to archive it, because in the future, um, I, I'll be able to tap into that and it will help me in some other aspect of my life. So it's been, like I said, it's been very effective and I recommend Glenn Younger's um, modality. It's, it really, really works. I, I love that. I have a very deep connection with the earth. I love touching the mud and the sand and the bark and mm -hmm. the, and the water and leaves. And when I'm in the, uh, when I'm in the forest, which these guys know is basically almost every single day that I'm off of work, I'm, I, it's a tactile experience for me, but I would love to try that modality. And two interesting things from what you said is one is your favorite color is the color of the heart chakra is green. And when you talked about non-harming, uh, that's ahimsa in the one of the five limbs, uh, the eight limbs of yoga, rather, but uh, part of the, the first, uh, the yamas and the yamas. Uh, ahimsa mm -hmm. is non-harming. So see that uh, me and uh, him are more connected by more things than just the military <laughs> uh, money. Nathan. Yeah, I love that. And John, I love that uh, you're, you're so forthcoming in your personal experiences. I think, um, you know, growing up in the U S and the West, my perception of government agencies is just entirely painted by Hollywood and, and television. And it, it, it's a very kind of uh, mechanistic and reductionistic mm -hmm. way of looking at that function. And, and I, I appreciate you just being a person uh, who has an, happens to have an informed opinion. And, and I, I think it's helpful for folks. And when we, DJ, we and I talked with uh, some pilots. It's helpful for folks to, uh, I think, understand that there are human beings behind all these agencies. And, and, when we're, and particularly when we're talking about intelligence, uh, it's important that we bring in that human element and bring in lots of different perspectives. In some ways, I would imagine working in intelligence is a creative act. Is that, would you, how, how would you kind of weigh in on that in terms of uh, the level of outside the box thinking, creativity, uh, bouncing ideas off of your colleagues to getting at models that better explain what it is that our, 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 our intelligent, our, our pieces of intelligence really mean. Right. So everyone brings their own experiences and their own biases and their own worldviews to any job. Um, that's maybe the way uh, we were taught, we were raised in whatever situation, uh, social economic situation we may have uh, lived through um, in our younger years. But in the intelligence community, we're basically looking at facts. And the interpretation of those facts is based on other sources of data. So it's not like we're presenting opinions. We don't present opinions to the policymakers. However, um, we do take in just about everyone else's opinions out there that may exist uh, for a particular issue. And we also have within the CIA, for example, we have people who are uh, well-versed and trained, they're, they're medical professionals, into thinking about what that leader might be uh, basing his or her decision on 
looking back at that leader's life um, and whatever like um, uh, long-term uh, goals that leader might have based on his or her own personal experiences. And so that's kind of what we call leadership analysis. And that helps us to couch things in terms of why that leader is behaving the way that leader is behaving, you know, uh, what, what, what is driving that leader to act or to think in that way? What is that leader's worldview? And so um, together with that type of information, with technical information, and with other sources um, telling us, you know, informing us of what's going on behind the scenes in another country, um, we're able to then uh, assess and judge um, what's, what uh, events might be happening. And so we use the terms, in fact, we use the terms, we judge, we assess, we believe. Each one of those carries a certain weight uh, behind it. And uh, so when we say we believe, um, that's based on like some assumptions there um, because it's a belief. <laughs> we don't have enough information, but based on the scanned information we have, we believe. Uh, we judge is a little bit higher than that. Um, because when we judge about something, we take the, these um, beliefs and we have maybe some more information to make a judgment. Uh, but when we say we assess, um, that means we have a lot of information. And so an assessment comes at um, a much higher uh, degree of, um, of verifiability, ability, that we do have excellent sources. And so when we assess something, it's the is to be taken seriously. Uh, so we have various levels of, of, of understanding. And uh, so we're trained. We go to a school called the uh, Sherman Kent School for Analysis. Every new analyst uh, at CIA, every new hire, uh, will go through uh, weeks and weeks of how to be an intelligence analyst, regardless of their academic training. We have PhDs, as well as folks with bachelor's degrees going through the same course how to be an analyst, how to do critical thinking. Um, economy of words is another one. How do we express ourselves using uh, precise language with the fewest words possible? Uh, so there's a way we write, and we teach them how to write the CIA way. We teach them how to diagram sentences like we used to do in school. I don't know if they do that anymore. But, you know, noun, verb, and some modifier, this is the way we write. And so, um, in fact, the clue is... Um, that uh, the New York Times um, style guide is probably pretty close to the, what the CIA uh, follows, the New York Times style guide and the way we construct sentences. So um, that's the best answer I can give. It's been so long since <laughs> I've been an analyst. But well, it's fascinating. And do you think that we have uh, uh, you know, enough of a picture of the phenomenon now to be able to construct those uh, conclusions or assessments? Or, you know, what would it take for us to get, uh, what kind of access would we need to be able to get to that place? You know, is it through the task force? Is it, you know, getting not just what we have from our sensors, but also our experiencers? How much would we need to be able to put together, in your opinion, a, a more fulsome picture of of what it really is? Well, definitely more than what's collected technically, uh, because what's collected technically is what you see now. Um, what you see uh, when you watch the Tic Tac video or the gimbal or go fast videos, 
or what citizens have recorded with their own cameras. Um, that can be considered technical intelligence. Um, but what differentiates government technical intelligence is that it's instrumented. That is to say that instead of just seeing an orb of light, we can actually measure what wavelengths that orb of light might be transmitting. Um, it could be electromagnetic transmissions coming from that craft. For example, uh, some uh, disturbance in the field, some um, influence of, of the field around it that we can collect technically. Um, but that just gives you uh, the nuts and bolts um, idea of what we're seeing. Um, what's really important is to incorporate how seeing something like that influences or um, I don't know of a better word than influence, but how do we feel about what we saw? What meanings do we attribute to what we saw? Because everyone who seems to have, or I would say not everyone, but most people who've experienced this phenomenon uh, was affected by it in some way. And in most people, it just opens up uh, channels of curiosity to just learn more. And I don't want to call it an obsession or compulsion, but all of a sudden you're just so interested in finding out more and more information about what, what uh, one might have witnessed. Mm -hmm. And so that needs to be incorporated as well. And I would say that um, in, within government, there are many, many experiences, as, as I said. And so they need to also uh, be able to have a voice in whatever investigation that may occur um, officially. Because just, just being able to photograph these craft or these orbs and just being able to measure, you know, scientifically what they mean um, or just an analyzing metamaterials, it doesn't really tell us why they're here and why do some of us interact with this phenomenon on a person-to-person -person basis. The experiences we have are very important. So I'm hoping that Congress will, like, open up channels for that type of investigation to occur and actually ask the Pentagon, ask CIA about the experiences that maybe some of us have had. I'd be happy to be a witness uh, to tell Congress, share with Congress what, what I experienced uh, uh, while I was at CIA. And I'm sure there are other CIA officers. And in fact, Jim Simivan uh, recently um, revealed some of his experiences while he was working at CIA. So I'm sure there's a lot of information that can help us understand this phenomenon at a deeper level, because that's where it really counts. It's the message. Mm -hmm. I don't care how they arrived. I don't care who's driving them. I want to know <laughs> why they're here and why they're interacting with me and why do I receive the messages I've received and what others have received. That's very important as well. Yeah, I think our challenge is going to be if those end up in the unclass side that we get in a report or if they remain behind the classified side, if they are, in fact, briefed, whatever they whatever intelligence they're gathering in. Uh, I'm hearing I'm hearing numbers like 15 reports a month was a guesstimate from somebody in the know. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try to get a better number out there. But that's that's significant. That's, you know, like 180, you know, or so a year. But um uh, I, I did appreciate Nathan bringing up the humanization of people that do this. Uh, Chris, I just want to throw out there, I know that John's familiar with Chris Lato, but I also want to let the audience know he just did an episode with uh, a guy named Artisan Tony, who I was unfamiliar with, who's extremely 
a bright person and another person who I believe was a physicist and Lou Elizondo. And you want to talk about Chris Leto beyond being an F-16 pilot has a comp- scientific component to him that is beyond what I knew. And Nathan and I have interviewed the guy. So, I mean, it's a fascinating go, go into your YouTube and find that. Troy Broskovitz was on with us, uh, John. He was a retired colonel. I flew with Broskovitz in special ops, but he did a significant amount of time in joint special ops on the, um, let's say, the command and staff side for, for JSOC. And a uh, brilliant guy and very interested to learn and open to learn. And that's not something that would have happened, you know, when we were active duty. He's retired now, flying from mm-hmm. the airlines. But so, yeah, humanization. So thank you, Nathan, for bringing that topic up. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, John, um, if your primary mission is disclosure, I think you've acknowledged that on a number of occasions, and it has really helped us, uh, as a community because people can look at folks like yourself, folks like Jim and Lou and Alex and Dave Fravor and say, okay, We've got some leaders here who have some credibility within the system, if you will. Now we can fall in behind and, and, and share our experiences and, and, and feel open to do that. I would ask you, if, if that were your primary mission, your secondary mission, your connection to the phenomenon is what? What do you see as your, if that's your primary, what is your secondary mission that drives you that when you get up in the morning, you think about that in addition to disclosure. We know disclosure is number one. Well, it may surprise you that I don't think about this all the time. In fact, um, uh, it's, it's been so much a part of my life that it's like everything else that's been a part of my life uh, over a lifetime. Um, it's I don't carve anything out for it other than um, my own um, mindful meditation practices. And so I'm not thinking about UAPs all the time. Um, the reason why uh, I became more public is, is because um, I know I had information to share and I just wanted to share it. And I, one of the things I wanted to share was that um, there's more than just these craft that are metallic flying in our skies. There are these high strangeness um, artifacts, I call them, we call them orbs, that don't seem to be like structured craft, yet they appear before people and convey messages or some it has some effect in people's lives. Um, that for me, that was an important message to say that the government knows about these orbs. It's not just the saucers or not just saucer-shaped craft. There are orbs that mm-hmm. government is aware of and have studied before there was an all-sap. And they, there may uh, there might be a higher consciousness aspect to the appearance of these orbs in the sense that when we see these orbs, um, our lives change in some way. Um, like I said, there's, there could be a, a personal message for that individual. For me, it was to, okay, you know a lot of things, it's time for you to share. So that occurred in July of 2020. And since that time, um, things have fallen into place in my life that I was um, introduced to certain people that I need to be introduced to and to be able to put together uh, a presentation I did. Um, it's not that I want anybody to believe that presentation at all. It's just, it, that's my personal experience. I'm sharing what I needed to do to put things together in my own head. 
whether it resonates with people or not, um, I wasn't too concerned about. So it's not a mission of trying to convince people that what was in my presentation is true and this is it, this is what's really going on. I have no idea, but that's what I experienced personally. Uh, so secondarily, it's more like um, helping individuals who've encountered phenomena that may not understand it uh, and may need help. And that's why I promote um, uh, organizations such as Opus or the QHHT modality. Um, I support those efforts to help individuals. And thirdly, um, I'm interested in what's known as uh, exodiplomacy. Um, you may have heard it as like the ET embassy. Um, I think, you know, it's like welcoming ETs to the embassy from out there. I think they're already here mm -hmm. uh, and they've been here a long time. What I don't know is like, has there been any interaction officially between the governments of this planet and these various um, beings that appear? And I don't think they're all the same beings. I don't know if they're all friendly. I don't know if they're all unfriendly. But maybe there's been some alliances made that we don't know about. You know, that that's a big piece of that disclosure puzzle that I don't think we'll we'll actually hear about. I think it'll, uh, it'll always be like some somebody from somewhere else, not that they're already here. Um, and that's a big piece of it. And so that's why I wanted to share that. I guess I wasn't a meeting at that hotel. And that meeting actually did happen. And the individuals involved sponsored a meeting. They're real people. Um, and they did talk about the fact that um, that uh, humans have alien DNA and we may be hybrids. That meeting actually occurred. That information I presented to uh, two uh, credible people in the field that I know would have the means to investigate what I revealed. I told them the names of the people that were involved and my relationship to those people that were involved in that meeting. So it's up to them to do the investigation if they so choose. I don't have much doubt. Uh, Fl Flarius, are you up, my friend? Well, <laughs> pregnant pause. <laughs> my name is Flair. I like fly. <laughs> um, gosh, um, I actually wanted to go back into consciousness. Actually, we're kind of talking about that anyway, but um. Remote viewing. It's one of my favorite topics. Are, are you you're a remote viewer, right? Are you, you trained? No. Oh, you're not? Okay. No. I dabbled in it like, now I use the word dabble because basically that's all I did, like most people do. That's what, what I, mean. I did was um, I purchased uh, two of the kits um, being sold by um, Ed Dames, and uh, he was promoting these remote viewing kits. I don't think they're available anymore, but he was promoting a remote viewing kit during the era of Art Bell. So I purchased that kit way back when and a more recent one. Um, but they've been like, it's been over like a decade or so that I really mm -hmm. like sat down and went through parts of that, those courses. So I got a, like a uh, conversational understanding of remote viewing. Um, I've never really seriously uh, did remote viewing. However, having said that, I know that I did receive some data based on remote viewing during the course of my work. And uh, they didn't tell me what the source was because the first thing an analyst would want to know when receiving data was, 
where did it come from? How was it collected? because that helps us validate the information that we have. And I was told that it was from a very sensitive program. And I said, okay. And uh, it was just sketches. It was drawings and a description of the drawing. And it's almost like a person that's like, the way it was written, it was almost as if the, the person writing the description was describing a dream. Um, and that, it seemed like a dream so real that this person actually experienced something. And it's very different from other pieces of data that I received that may come from a human source, which is more cut and dry. And um, mm -hmm. reports officers and the director of operations, um, they take that raw reporting from a source and they put it together in a report for the analysts can access and use. Um, it wasn't written like that. Um, it was more like, uh, this is my experience. <laughs> I saw this and um, here's what I encountered. So if you look at any of the released um, remote viewing reports, it's very much like that with sketches. And uh, mm -hmm. so um, I was able to do some analysis on, uh, on the sketches. And later, I found out that um, the remote viewer actually was able to see a, um, a Russian radar before it was deployed. Mm. That it was like the planning for a Russian radar before it was deployed, and I was just amazed how how close it was. That's so cool. Oh, um, is that Pat something? Pat somebody of his name? Pat Price? Um, I I don't know Pat Price. Um, I did huh. the name of the remote viewer was not part of the report. They didn't tell me it was from remote viewing, but because huh. of the nature of um, the data I was presented, sketches, not photographs from mm -hmm. space, but someone's right. hand-drawn sketches um, and someone's description of what they saw in this environment. Uh, I don't know who exactly did the remote viewing at all, but that name doesn't sound familiar as part of this report. Do, do you know if, if, if remote viewing is still being implemented um, in the CIA, like maybe for stuff going on in the world? <laughs> uh, I would say this, that there's still a remote viewing program, but it's not a government remote viewing program. I believe it's been outsourced. So okay. yes, I would say, um, yes, there is remote viewing, uh, but no, it's not like uh, a direct government program anymore. I believe it's been outsourced. Interesting. Thank you. <laughs> and, and Debs, is this the part where you ask about the ET council? No. Okay, fine. That's going to be Somebody a different should. time. Okay, all right, fine. <laughs> it's going to be on the dojo. No, 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 no. Um, actually, um, the question I have is a few times I've heard you say that you're surprised people haven't asked you certain things. And actually, what I'd really like to know is what is it that you want them to ask you about that people are not asking about? Therefore, my question is, what is the question? <laughs> 42. I don't remember the question. <laughs> what? This is like not being able to decipher the, the puzzle outside the CIA. Oh. Come on, John. You said no, there are two um, things you're waiting for people to ask you. No, not just two, just in general. Maybe it was things. asked. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I made a statement before that when you ask us questions, the formers, if you ask us questions, ask us questions which demand a yes or no answer. <laughs> And do not allow us to go into an essay answer where we can deflect the question. 
I'll give you that much. So, you know, when you say, um, for example, you may ask me, um, John, is there a Majestic 12 group? And I will say no. Oh, well, I can give you a yes or no question that came to mind. Okay. And so, <laughs> but then the, the question should be, John, is there a committee advising policymakers and does this committee manage the UFO narrative, the UAP narrative? And they all say, yes. So we answer literally what you ask. And we're trained not to volunteer any more than what you ask. So, you know, okay. you have to be really precise in, in the question. So if you ask one of us about orbs, you know, and you say, um, yeah, um, uh, KH-11 Keenan uh, spacecraft uh, may have had an IR sensor that detected orbs. Uh, can you tell me about that? And I'm going to say, well, I, I'm uncomfortable to talk about the KH-11 because it's a sensitive capability and, and I don't want to talk about it. But um, yeah, generally, yeah, we, we've studied this for a long time. Okay, so I kind of deflected the orbs. Um, the, the better question would have been, has the government studied orbs before OSAP? Yes or no? And the answer is yes, we have. And there I have no opportunity to deflect the answer. It's yes or no. In fact, when you take a polygraph test um, in government, especially CIA, um, all the questions are yes or no, um, Alyssa, yes, yes or no answers. You know, so it's it's no opportunity to like deflect uh, with an essay answer, you know, just yes or no. So John, remove. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say your resistance training techniques are right on, John. I could tell you did well in resistance training. Uh, <laughs> advanced beatings. Uh, but anyway, okay, so here goes one then. Uh, Jeb no. is saying we should try one. Yeah. So uh, I know that you have said before that these orbs were seen in a certain IR spectrum, and you actually told us what spectrum that they were seen in, uh, which tells us um, – Okay, so it tells us that they're seen. My question would just be if there's any metallic component. So my question would be, are they also painted on radar? Yes. Ooh, that raises the stakes. Okay, next person. Go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I've heard, John, that uh, you have some friends who've had experiences of the lady similar to what uh, Chris Bledsoe has described. Is that right? Yes. And is um, what, what, can, what more can you tell us about that specifically? Uh, you know, kind of, she seems to have conveyed uh, information about the future, like future earth situations or, you know, what, what, what can you tell us about that? That's not a yes or no question, but I, I'd like to know what you, what sure, your friends' um, experiences were like there and what, what they learned from her. It's more about um, a, a, a shift that will be occurring um, over the earth, um, a shift in, in perception, uh, in a shift in consciousness. And it's an elevation or enhancement of our consciousness that will occur over a period of time um, that... Uh, this shift in consciousness might be occurring with more of a visible presence. Um, and so 
basically that that was it. And the best person is to interview that person <laughs> himself. But uh, it, what he got was um, not necessarily a, a warning, but uh, more about it's it's kind of a more of a enlightening uh, kind of situation where you know there's a positive shift in consciousness that you become more aware of, of, of us and why we're here. Um, and so along those lines, um, so it was a white lady, uh, the lady in white, um, much like what Chris Bledsoe uh, witnessed, that this gentleman has witnessed as well. And he's also a lifelong experiencer and he's also has uh, evidence of some kind of scoop marks uh, on his body. Yeah. Thank wow. you. Debs has something for you, something very important. So if she says it's important, it must be important. Okay, I'm going to try with this yes or no question thing. So <clears throat> recently, a certain individual has come forward hinting heavily that there have been biological samples, photos taken of occupants, other nations are calling these extraterrestrials. So to the best of your knowledge... Yes or no, does the government know what's flying these? Not all, not every single craft. But so some. I was saying, no, not every single craft. But some? I would, I would, odds on, yes. Some. Okay. Okay. And I, and I'll, and to be fair, that sounds like speculation. So I don't want anyone going after John about that. That sounded like speculation. Is that correct? It's mostly speculation. Yes. Um, okay. And uh, in fact, uh, my reference is Lou himself. He said, we know who's in some of these craft or words to that effect, if you recall. So we mm -hmm. do know who's flying some of these. Um, he mentions uh, being able to see through windows. <laughs> so. Um, I assume that they are able to um, actually um, have some knowledge of, of who's in them. But that's a question on the U.S. side. I know more about, um, about the Russian side, what they may have encountered. Because CIA, we don't, we don't analyze you know, things in the U.S. at right. all. <laughs> yeah. We're a foreign intelligence agency, not a domestic intelligence agency. That would be like Homeland Security and FBI doing that kind of work, but we're looking at foreign countries. So we we're more cognizant of what's what other countries have seen regarding this phenomenon. And uh, Debs has a question from the chat from uh, your fellow panelist from the experiencer panel, Max McCabe from England. So go for it, Debs. Yes. Um, Max says, can John say how far out from low earth orbit objects have been seen approaching from beyond moon orbit? Or deep space. Well, um, the uh, NRO satellites don't look out there; they look down on the Earth. And uh, the, the um, satellites that take pictures, um, infrared satellites, um, they have various orbits. I can say that in the early years, it was what we would call low Earth orbit, and that's defined. Um, various definitions, but usually um, they're up about, let's say, 400 miles up thereabouts, maybe a little bit lower. It depends because the orbit isn't completely circular. Um, and some of them are in what we call high elliptical, mm -hmm. um, where we want 
the high part of that ellipse to be over the target of interest and the low part being closer to home. Uh, why is the reason? Uh, because when you go toward the high part, you're up in space with longer persistence over our targets of interest, countries of interest. And as we then descend into the low part of the ellipse, uh, we're flying over the US, that's where the data dumps occur. So you wanna dump the data closer to the ground, but you wanna take the pictures high above so that you have more persistence. Um, I can answer that way. And also um, some of the infrared satellites that we have, the new ones, um, I can say SBIRS, S-B-I-R-S, SBIRS. Uh, that's not a classified term whatsoever. You can like Google it and you can Wikipedia it. Um, they have various orbits, um, and one of them is a geosynchronous orbit, this Seabirds uh, Geo, and that means it's flying um, high enough so that it faces the same point on Earth all the, the time. time. Yeah. So um, we have those satellites as well, and obviously they're going to be persistently looking over targets of interest in the other hemisphere. Um, and I can also say this, that, okay, so you're in high Earth orbit, or like geosynchronous orbit, and you're on the other side of the world, how do you get the data? I can say that um, it's not classified that we use um, a data relay satellite system <laughs> called TDRSS, TDRS. Uh, that's what NASA uses for a lot of uh, manned space flight, uh, be able to communicate um, around the Earth, uh, no matter where you are, there's a constellation uh, that we can communicate. So they link data to that and eventually gets down to the Earth. So that's classified, you can look at TDRS. Things with space telescope, however, uh, so far away, uh, they need to use the big, huge, giant dishes. Um, like I think Goldstone is one in California, um, these deep space network um, to be able to talk to the James Webb Space Telescope out there. But NASA's looking out. Uh, NASA also looks in somewhat because they um, work with uh, NOAA or weather satellites. So there's some uh, cooperation there, um, but the intelligence community, um, we're looking down on the earth because that's our target. And uh, when they were first detected, um, they were flying in low earth orbit at the time. A lot of your global warming data comes from NASA, NOAA, and then uh, the Europeans have one as well. But uh, a lot of those, uh, I did some, some study on that in school and uh, NASA is... It's got some uh, great technology that they've tracking global warming. Um, so uh, Deb, I think, has a follow-up, and then I'll get to your colleague, Anjali. Deb, hello? Sorry, I'm, I'm, sc I'm scrolling back up because there's a second part. There it is. Um, can you confirm or deny whether the Atlantis shuttle return was delayed due to the orbs blocking the re-entry flight path? I can't. Confirm or deny anything. I had no knowledge of it. Okay. Yeah, I think that I guess people are just trying to figure out exactly where those orbs were placed, and and I I did get from what you were saying they're actually fairly close, um, which is, you know, it leads people to just kind of wonder how far out in space we're looking when we're looking for these objects in general. But I guess we'll find out more in the future when NASA starts right. telling us some more, right? Right. And, and the space shuttles, um, they're not flying as high as some of our inter satellites. They're flying a lot lower than that. And in the International Space Station, they're not flying like way up there. 
They're much closer to the Earth than we think. Still in space, but much closer to the Earth than we think. Um, so as far as an orb getting in the way of a, a shuttle, I, I've not heard about that at all. I wish we would have had Terry Verts on. We got to get John and Terry Verts on together to talk about his experiences on. He's got, you know, several missions to the space station. So I'd love. I'm sure you've got. You'd have great questions for Terry. He's also. Uh, he's not like a UF. He's definitely interested in this topic enough to have a good discussion. Kev, did you have something that? Um... I had a yes or no question about orb. Oh, nope. Well, there we go. Yeah. Okay. So yes or no. Orbs and sleep paralysis. Is there a connection? Orbs and what was the last part? Sleep paralysis. I have to say no because I never experienced an orb that caused sleep paralysis. Okay. I had sleep paralysis, but I wasn't aware of an orb causing it at all. Uh, For me, it was mostly waking up in that state and uh, seeing a presence. A shadow okay. presence uh, in my bedroom. All right, Nathan, my man. Let me, sir. Um, in your informed opinion and speculation, do you think we will get answers to our questions within the next ten to twenty years? Well, um. The best answer I can give you is that um, the AOI MSG, which owes a 180-day report, so that's twice a year, is in operation uh, through uh, 30 September uh, 2026. And after that, there is no more AOI MSG. So if they're going to give us answers, they got uh, through that construct of that legislation, they got um, from now until the next four or five years to do so. and after that, Congress will have to re-legislate anything. So I keep hearing that, um, you know, what we should do, uh, and this, I believe, comes from Lou, that we should uh, find a hobby for the next five years. And, <laughs> come out. and so I was thinking about that and I go, oh, that's interesting because, you know, there's that in black and white, in ink, you know, 30 September 2026 is the end of the AOI MSG effort. So does that mean that they're pacing it so that we get to know a lot more or if not everything until then, I don't think we know everything, but I think we will learn a lot more than what we know now. Um, And uh, I'll be curious to see exactly what the government will reveal. I know what they can reveal. I don't know if they go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were talking with uh, Christopher Sharp recently of uh, the liberation times and he it was kind of a throwaway comment, but he mentioned that there may be more to the uh, Dr. Haim Meshed comment from, uh, you may remember him making a comment. Yeah. He was the former, I guess, head of Israeli space, um, that the Galactic Federation, that there may be some more truth to that. And so I guess my question for you related to that is, uh, do you believe that we are in any type of cooperation with some of these others? Again, this is going to be more speculation on my part because I have not heard of anything like that. Having said that, um, I have to believe that, again, not knowing what's going on in the United States, um, that in in Russia and prior to Russia, the Soviet Union, there were efforts to make contact, um, close and personal contact, uh, more like um, close accounts of the third kind of contact, um, 
and I reference the uh, Major General um, Alexeyev, who said that the Soviet government instructed um, the Soviet military to try to make contact using various devices, uh, such as um, uh, radar stations and uh, telescopes, instrumented telescopes with lasers on them, and that they did make contact and they were able to interact with um, these craft like really close to the ground um, to the point where the humans were like facing the craft and the craft was reacting uh, to human gestures of the arms and hands. So whether they landed and someone came out, I don't know. Um, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we might have had similar type of uh, encounters um, that haven't been made uh, or haven't been publicly disclosed. That's the thing. Um, how much have we interacted with whoever is on board these craft? Um, that's probably a really, really deeper secret, probably more secret than um, the fact that we may have exploited the craft, you know, that's easier to swallow than, uh, yeah, <laughs> they came out and we greeted them uh, wherever they might might have done that. You know, you hear stories about uh, Holloman Air Force Base and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You hear all these stories come out. Um, it's hard to prove because there's really, you know, other than speculation and other than uh, some people saying I was there or I knew someone who was there and they swore to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to like say this actually happened. That's the hard part is, are, are we ever going to see that in, in is, are the lawmakers ever going to see that intelligence or are they only going to see what happened from 2017 and here to four? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I would like to, Oh, um, Deb's got one thing. I'm going to ask one question about your colleague and then we'll come back to Deb's. Uh, and this is basically like the appetizer. Uh, before you go on the Deb's Data Dojo, this is like the poo-poo platter, but don't eat all the fantail shrimp because, you know, you got several main courses coming up on uh, on the, the dojo. Um, so uh, relative to your colleague, Anjali, who I believe you said you've been in touch with, she is my UFO Twitter crush. So I just want to lay that on the table before we go any further. Um, but um, in terms of her experience are you somebody that would have wanted to go to the cave with her? Had you, had you spoken about that with her when it was still an impending German, uh, a journey that she was to take and is now in doubt due to uh, a lot of the doxers out there? Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Um, having said that, um, uh, uh, I'm, I will have to state that she is a Defense Intelligence Agency retired officer. So um, let's dispel that myth. Um, I've spoken with her personally, mm -hmm. and I knew um, through, other, uh, through another source that her background has been validated. She was with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, but yeah, I would love to have gone into the cave with her. Um, but um, just going into a cave, I mean, I don't know what that would purpose that would serve unless you go there to document, you know, mm -hmm. I would go in there with some instrumentation to see exactly is it something that um, that they presented themselves to her only or can other people see mm -hmm. as well? Are they uh, corporeal? 
or the more energetic type beings that there's, you can see the energy signature of them, but not necessarily them in the in the flesh. But yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, I would volunteer to go if offered the opportunity. When you've spoken with her about it, what is the feeling you get from? Because it, it's such a prolific experience, it it blows my mind every time that I hear her tell it. What did you feel when you when she spoke ab- about it with you? Well, we didn't really talk too much about um, the cave so much as sharing our personal experiences. Um, we went there more than anything. And, and the fact that we know, we both know that um, in, within her agency, DIA, within my agency, CIA, there are people who have been experiencers that are not forthcoming. Um, and they're afraid to come out, you know, because, especially if they're still serving within their, their agencies. Uh, but there are a lot of retirees that might be able to um, share what they know. Um, but uh, other than that, um, we didn't talk too much about the cave it- itself. Um, I would love to um, know where the cave is at. I mean, I mean, I, I would think that there might be remote sensing ways to determine, um, you know, there's ground penetrating radar and things like that that you can bring to bear on something like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the location of it, um, you can access it probably with instrumentation from a distance. Um, I would be interested in that, but uh, most of our conversations have been very personal about our experiences and how it affected our lives. Having said that, I, I will reveal that um, I did express um, that I wish she would have gone through official channels within the DIA and the Defense Department. Um, to get that DOPSR kind of stamp of approval. And, uh, and that's that's the official review process within the department to say, okay, you can say this, it's not classified. It's the same thing I did with CIA through our uh, pre-publication classification review board. They review what you want to reveal and they determine what can and cannot be said. And I wish she went through that process because that would have given her a lot of validity ahead of time. Because in order to go to DOPSR, you, you have to be in the intelligence community or in the Defense Department um, on the def- on the military side, and uh, that would have given her a lot of lot of validity. That actually went and presented my story to them, and they said it was unclassified. So I mean that tells you right there. Yeah, she is a DIA officer. No doubt, man. And send her a heart bubble emoji for DJ. And uh, let's go back for uh, Debs. What do you have, Debs? Yeah, John, I just wanted to follow up on that comment that you just kind of put out there, and we need to jump back to it. The I know what they can reveal comment that was dropped. <laughs> what yeah. can they reveal? Let's, uh, let's go. One of, they're, both, they're both very sensitive, and I would have to... Um, invoke NDA on that. I uh, just say that there are things that um, the government could reveal if they choose to reveal it. That will open up um, a whole nother level of discussion. Um, and that might be too sensitive for the government to, to do anything about. Um, but it's beyond like UAPs in the sky. Um, it, this is at a level where even if the government revealed that we reverse engineered some of these crap, um, this is like deeper than that. They just can't go there. I don't think they will ever go there. 
And before I know we're going to have to get some uh, closing closing questions for John. You've been extremely gracious with your time. Uh, yeah, I, I, there's some some very existential issues with uh, something that would be uh, a, a level of of revelation that that could upset uh, a, a fairly fragile, you know, not only domestic uh, situation but possibly even international situation as well. Um, because, uh, people tend to not, you know, we, I think we look at ourselves in the UAP UFO Twitter community and we say, we're ready to know this. And we are, we are ready to know this. Um, but I don't know that everybody falls in that same category as, as we are, because a lot of people are not tracking on this at all. And it, it could upset the way they look at the world. Nathan knows, you know, has interacted with a lot of people that would, uh, fall in that category and is counseled with a lot of those people so and probably deb and flair as well so i it, it's an unfortunate circumstance i think it's going to be drip 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 until this huge you know 50 gallon drum fills up and that's going to take a while because it's more than 50 gallons uh closing questions for mr ramirez please john i just want to thank you for coming on um i i I want to know, do you think that our models are there yet? Our models for understanding reality are adequate enough to understand what this may be. And is that really what is at the heart of the problem? It's not just, you know, that there are alien others or that there's, you know, spacecraft or saucers, but our our sort of very understanding of reality is is fundamentally uh, incorrect. And, and And we have to kind of get a lot of people on board with that, with a different understanding in order for us to really talk about what, what this is. Yes. I'm not a philosopher uh, and neither am I an engineer or physicist. Um, but I took a year long course called, um, exo studies, uh, taught by Dr. Sean Espjorn Hargens. And we dealt with a lot of the, um, approaches to understanding this phenomenon, uh, based on like, uh, various philosophical disciplines. We looked at the various hypotheses that are out there. The, the one I discount the most is the ET hypothesis. The fact that they're from far away, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 light years away, and they're coming over in metallic craft and they're warping into our space and uh, here they are. Um, I, I discount that uh, a little strongly uh, than the fact that they've been here a long time and that happened a long time ago and they're still here and <clears throat> they may be closer than we think and they're very very close to us and they may have interacted with us over the years of human development and may have helped in the human development itself I, i'm more attuned to that um that type of uh idea but uh, having said that um you know i i i would say this that i would think that there might be a way for uh, the government to uh, approach it from a scientific point of view. Uh, the fact that the James Webb Space Telescope might detect something that the government already knows it's there or suspect it's there, but now you're getting data through a scientific channel, not through a military channel, but a scientific channel. And that data uh, should be shared openly with the scientific community around the world. And maybe they can find something that will help the government build that bridge to who they are and, and why they're here. And uh, the biggest clue I got was uh, DNI Avril Haines, 
when she stated that uh, we would perhaps we would need uh, Bill's folks to uh, point the way in helping us understand this phenomenon. Bill, meaning Bill Nelson, director, uh, the administrator of NASA. Mm-hmm. She stated that at the National Cathedral uh, during that uh, gathering. So uh, I always said the James Webb Space Telescope is probably the key uh, in helping the government through scientific means uh, discover something that's out there. Um, so um, that James Webb Space Telescope, first light, um, the first 180-day report from Congress and possibly hearings uh, accompanying that report, and the 75th anniversary of Roswell all happened within a week of each other. Amazing. I feel Thank like you. we should pay you for this appearance. Flair. <laughs> all right. John Ramirez. Thanks for being here, man. Um, I have one last yes or no question. It's all about me, of course. John Ramirez. <laughs> would you consider me to be an experiencer? You're asking me if I'm yeah. I would you, be an experiencer? Ba- ba- based on uh, my uh, my tale earlier, would you consider oh, yeah. me an absolutely. experiencer? Yeah? Absolutely. Okay. Yes, absolutely. All right. So, okay, I'll check out Opus then. So th- yeah, thank you for a reference. It takes one. Yeah? It takes okay. one to be an experiencer. All right. Well, yeah, thank you for your answer earlier, for um, all your, your insights about my experience, actually. You, too. you answered a lot of questions for me. And you gave me somewhere to, to go with the experience. So I appreciate that very much. It's great talking to you. So thanks. Sure. Debs, your next victim on the dojo. What, what final words do you have until He's he reappears? He's not going to be a victim, actually. Okay, sorry. Bad characterization. <laughs> I just want to clarify, when John comes, he's going to be on the dojo to educate people on how yes. to um, get help with experiences, which is amazing that Flair's talking about that today because that's exactly what we want to work on. But anywho, um, <laughs> he, he always laughs when I say anywho. That's why he's laughing at me. Anywho, um, my, my question actually has to do with something um, that has been mentioned before. Um, of course, I don't want to um, bring this all back up right at the end of the show, but one thing but that's been discussed discussed is the 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 hybrid um concept and um when you read some of the reports from indigenous people all over the world they actually refer to star people or sky people um depending on who you talk to um as ancestors Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's a potential other another explanation. I do understand that genetic manipulation may have happened at a different level. Experimentation may have happened, um, still happening. But is it possible that the original genetic coding and similarities is because of a shared and common ancestor? Well, I think that's highly possible, yes. Um, it, it's... Human development is very interesting. Um, we, we hear about a missing gap, a missing link, for example, and I say it's not missing. It's it's an intervention that occurred that separated us from our uh, primate uh, friends. Our closest cousins um, don't look like us in any way, shape, or form. At least most of us, I hope, I don't look like a Bonobo. <laughs> but People might have difference, differences of opinion, but you know, if you look at the great, uh, the uh, great apes, uh, the, the higher primates in the wild, they don't look like humans at all, um, but they're human-like. 
um, and they, you know, they have the right number of appendages and their organs are in the right place and so forth and so on, but um, they don't look like us at all. Um, so I would say, yeah, that's a high possibility that we do have um, a common ancestry um, and that it may have been um, developed through some sort of intervention by those who've been here longer than we have. And so that's, that's my, uh, and they may have like um, broken away from us or are not here with us directly, but maybe nearby. That's that breakaway civilization hypothesis that um, I kind of somewhat adopted, but I think a lot of them are still here and um, they're in hiding. Um, and so that's kind of like one of the things that uh, I can't talk about. Ooh, you said, oh, I love that. Uh, well, we'll have the dojo and I'll, I'll mm. also have uh, have one question for the dojo. But I guess my last question to you, John, would be uh, as a CIA officer, if you could or retired, could you pick your favorite uh, movie agent slash officer? So we're talking here. We're talking about Jack Ryan. We're talking James Bond, Matt Helm. And of course, I know Nathan and my favorite, Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah, you, so you're talking about uh, fictional accounts. Yes. Yes. Who is your favorite? Um, gosh. Um, as far as like, well, none of them really are realistic what? enough. None <laughs> of them are really realistic enough. It's a, it's not supposed to be. We're we're having fun here, John. Austin Powers. He's driving a a, a Jaguar shaped with the with the British flag or right. you know ornamentation on it. Come on, right? Okay. Yeah, English. Um, I, um, right now I'm watching Homeland. I've never seen Homeland, and I'm still in like season five or thereabouts. And people say, "What? You've never seen Homeland? You've got to see Homeland. It's, it's all about CIA." And I watched Homeland and said, "That's nothing like CIA." Right. It's <laughs> nothing about enjoy it. It's entertaining. It's entertaining. So I, I pick Homeland as my favorite because that's what I'm watching right now. Uh, okay. But as far as uh, the movie that really got me interested in CIA, it was uh, Three Days of the Condor. Oh wow! Robert Redford and um, at least Faye Dunaway. Oh, okay. And that okay. one really sparked my interest in working for CIA. That is dope, man. That is nice. so cool. You had it throughout that outlier, man. Um, what? we're good. Nathan, did you have something? No, no, no. No, it's okay. great. No, we're we're uh, honored that you came in and joined us, uh, John, my mm -hmm. U.S. Navy brother. Um, hopefully, we'll we'll have you back on again to uh, chat with someone else and and get into some more deep talk and some more ridiculousness as well. Um, so for uh, for Nathan, for uh, Flarius, for Debs, this is DJ saying peace out. One love. We'll see you down the road. Like, subscribe, and that's all you got to do. All right. One peace, y'all. Peace.